Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. We are very excited to bring you a new episode of the podcast. Before we dive into this one, we have a few announcements to make. The program of the upcoming third edition of the Dr. GPCR Summit is taking shape. This year, the meeting will be held between October 10th and 16th. The meeting will be virtual so that we can allow as many participants from around the world as possible. We will host live talks, which will be hosted on Zoom from October 10th to the 15th. Everyone is welcome to participate by either listening into the talks, presenting a poster, or submitting a pre-recorded talk. We will also have prizes for trainees for their great presentations. We are also trying out a few new things. We'll host networking and poster sessions for the first time on Wonder. We will have also a full day dedicated to trainees and to trainee talks. We'll be hosting also workshops on data analysis, on how to preserve data integrity in the lab, and how to use GBCRDB. Everyone is welcome to attend. And it's free when you become a Dr. GBCR ecosystem site member, which is also free. Speaking of the ecosystem, we are excited to share that the Dr. GPCR Ecosystem 2.0 platform is now open. Visit drgpcr.com to explore the ecosystem. The ecosystem is your GPCR-focused virtual playground. Join over 50 of your peers who have already registered as site members. You'll also have the option to select a plan once you're a site member. You'll get access to all things Dr. GPCR, including access to new podcast episodes before they even get released to the general public. You'll get access to our new group discussion and forums, our job board, and our learning center while you'll be able to take a course or even prepare and share a course of your own with your colleagues. You'll also be able to discover GPCR companies and much more. Take advantage of everything that the new GPCR-dedicated online playground has to offer today. Once you're a site member, you can also become an ambassador, which means that you'll get your own dedicated Dr. GPCR ecosystem affiliate link. And every time someone subscribes for the year to the ecosystem, you'll get compensated. This will potentially help you offset the cost of the yearly membership. Last but not least, we're also looking for content creators. Subscribe to the ecosystem and start writing your own GPCR-focused content share it, and show off your GPCR talents. Visit drgpcr.com to find out more about all our activities. And now, let's dive into this episode. Hello, everyone. This is Yamina from Dr. GPCR, and I have the pleasure of having with me today Dr. Lauren Slusky. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Amina. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited that we're, we're doing this today. Yeah, it's really nice to see you again. It was nice to meet you at the Great Lakes GPCR retreat. That's exactly what I was going to say. Oh. It was really nice, nice to see you as well. And it was so interesting because... So I, I had seen your, I had seen a talk from you at, a, at the GPCR's Targeted Drug Discovery Summit. And until I saw you give the talk at the uh, retreat... I didn't make the connection until I saw the data and I was like, oh, yes, yes, yes. That's her. I loved her talk. It's really fun to have these kinds of forums, but I feel like the online never fully captures the experience of being there in person. So very fun to be able to be at an in-person conference again. I think so too. I think, and I think the retreat was just phenomenal and it felt like 
you know, the three years break didn't feel like a, like it never existed. Yes. And I really like this was my first time being at the retreat, but just mm-hmm. to be in one room and have one, you know, scientific session going and being able to do lunch and then dinner with the same group, I feel like a wonderful networking opportunity. And yeah, yeah. really happy to be able to do that this year. Uh, me too. Me too. I can't wait for, for next year's uh, GPC retreat um, in October. All right. Let's, let's, I think it was, and, and I, it's funny because even the, the, um, poster session was really awesome. Yes. I mean, so much exciting work going on. Maybe that is a function of not being able to do posters in person for a few years, but yeah. really wonderful. It, it, it was, it was, so I'm, I'm glad we got to meet and I'm glad I got to, uh, then invite you to come and join me today. Yeah, no, thank you again. This is wonderful. Of course, of course. All right, so let's let's dig deep into it. Uh, would you please walk us through um, who you are and how you got to where you are today? A little bit of an overview of your career so far. Yeah, definitely. Okay, I can try. So I would say I'm a pharmacologist and an aspiring neuroscientist. I'm interested in the molecular basis of behavior, as well as in drug discovery, particularly for psychiatric and neurologic disease. I feel like my true interest is in the molecular basis of the human experience, and that's so hard to model in animals. So behavior is kind of um, (laughs) an okay substitution there. And I guess I can also say, so I'm a wife and a daughter and a sister and a dog mom to my nine pound furball moose. (laughs) And let's see, a reality TV enthusiast, as well as a new PI at the University of Minnesota in the Department of Pharmacology. And how I got there, I just started my lab. We're in month eight of this pandemic lab start got going around November. And I moved most recently from North Carolina, where I was doing a postdoc with Mark Carone at Duke. And before that, I had done my undergraduate and graduate work at University of Arizona, also in the Department of Pharmacology, where I was working on not protein coupled receptors, but rather transporters, and looking at how um, opioids in particular get into the brain and how we can develop non-addictive, non-opioid therapeutics for the treatment of pain. And in this process, I just became very interested in this feature of opioids that we were working so hard to avoid, this reinforcing nature. And it got me thinking less about the transport or how these neurotransmitters were getting released and then how these drugs were getting in the brain, but you know, what do they actually do at their site of action, which was how I landed on this interest in receptor biology and ended up working with Mark Carone and Lawrence Barrick and looking not at opioid receptor pharmacology, but at neuropeptide receptors and trying to think about how we modulate the dopamine signaling that results from the acute administration of almost all classes of reinforcers, whether natural or synthetic. 
And so that was really the start of it, this journey from transporters and peripheral mechanisms of pain to G-protein coupled receptors in the brain and this interest in how we can modulate motivated behaviors. That's so, so interesting. So pharmacologist by heart and you just followed basically the science and the yes. interesting next interesting question that you might be, uh, you know, wanting to pursue. Exactly. Yeah. But how did you how did you pick your PhD lab or what did you do before your PhD? What were you interested in? Ooh, such a good question. So I I wish I could tell you this was a lifelong calling, but the truth is that I entered my undergraduate institution undeclared as far as a major, not even undeclared science, but just undeclared period, and realized fairly early on that I had this interest in biology. And I think like many of us decided that a good um, avenue to pursue would be medicine. So I started out as a pre-med undergraduate I spent one summer working in a pediatric pulmonology clinic and decided that sick kids just were not going to be something that I could be confronted with on a daily basis and really had this interest in improving human health on a larger scale than these one-on-one interactions and so became interested in research And I ended up doing a dual major in molecular and cellular biology and also psychology and thought for a bit about like going a clinical psychology route, but really have this interest in the molecular basis of these disorders and didn't feel like that was going to be fully satisfying. And so I knew I loved research. I had the opportunity to experience a research in a variety of contexts. I worked actually for the USDA doing some entomology research during some of the summers as an undergrad. I worked in a psychology lab doing some um, giving assessments over the phone and in person, looking at different cognitive changes resulting from the aging process and I wish I could tell you again that this was part of a grand plan, but I was coming up to my senior year of college and didn't know exactly what the future looked like. And I ended up going on a summer trip with my sister and my friend to visit her family in India. So we were with her mom. We were doing some traveling around and her mom knows that I'm having this career crisis of not knowing exactly what to do. We happened to be at an astrologer and she asked, you know, what should Lauren do as a career? And the astrologer said pharmacy and like was very certain about it. And so I was like, okay, pharmacy. I mean, it's in the realm of kind of what I was thinking. So this is like a month later, I get back and I'm just Googling, you know, what would it look like to get into a career in pharmacy? It turns out you need a lot of volunteer hours to get into pharmacy school. And that just didn't look like it was going to happen on the timeline at which these decisions needed to be made. And just like I think a lot of the general public confuses pharmacy and pharmacology, so does Google. And so eventually I got dumped into these web pages where I was finding websites about departments of pharmacology. And it was like, a light bulb went off. Like this is what I'm interested in. So it 
was experiencing like and understanding how these drugs act and also looking for new compounds, which would satisfy some of this want to have a positive impact on human health. So it was a little bit, like I said, I wish this was a calling, but it was kind of something that I fell into in pieces, but I'm just really happy with and not something I would have, you know, put my finger on as an 18 year old and said, this is what I want to do, but I'm so happy that I'm here. It's such an, such an interesting story. Um, and, you know, just to, I, I love the fact that you mentioned that, you know, it's not something you kind of fell into it because I think it's important to highlight that for the junior scientists and for everyone listening is I think it's very rare that someone very young, very early on knows what they want to do. And it's okay. I think it's the aspect of it's okay if you don't know. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that also. So yeah, just want to be transparent about that because I think (laughs) some people are, they have this idea very early on, but I think it's okay if this is something that you find along the way. I think so too. And I think, you know, the fact that you kind of, although you feel like you kind of fell into it, you always knew what you liked and what you didn't. You just had to put a name on it, a a tag on it. And it seems to me that pharmacology, and you're right, Google confuses pharmacology with pharmacy. A lot of people confuse that. And I have to, if somebody asks me what's pharmacology and I have to explain to them, they're like, oh, I thought, you know, you'd be counting pills at a pharmacy. (laughs) Right. And no, you're actually studying how the spills act on people's systems at a molecular level in order to better understand uh, the biology of these, these molecules. Yes. Which is, uh, I think it's, it's, it's really awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's, uh, it's, it's something that people have to understand and I'm grateful to you and to all of our previous guests who, who actually walked us through this period of uncertainty in their lives, Mm -hmm. thinking about, okay, so what am I supposed to do? Yes. And I think part of what makes really good scientists are people who could have exceeded in a lot of different careers because it takes so many skills aside from being able to do this scientific process in order to be successful. And so I think you look around and yeah. yeah. That's when you realize, actually, I'm not the only one who has these doubts or who thinks, oh, is this the right choice or not? But still, I think the common denominator for, for all of us who love pharmacology, who love, you know, working in the lab is this, this hunger for knowledge and this resilience that we get because you, everybody listening and you know, as well, 90% of the stuff that you do in the lab just doesn't work. Right. Yes. Yes. But then when it does, it just kind of wipes the board clean <laughs> to every yes. time it didn't work. <laughs> Yeah. It's like the high highs and the low lows. And luckily, if you have a short enough span, you can remember (laughs) the highs and try and get through. Yeah, exactly. Forget the lows. But let's let's take a step even further back. Lauren, as a child, Lauren, as a teenager, what were you interested in? Was it like a science more? Were you a science nerd or you never thought that you'd be a scientist now looking back? Oh, gosh. So I always really liked science and math. So I think that wasn't a big surprise, but I 
had a variety of interests and I feel like there wasn't one thing um, mm-hmm. that really stuck out, which is why I had entered this period of undergraduate education kind of undecided because, you know, I really liked literature. I really liked Spanish literature. I had done a study abroad trip to Spain and I have this interest in human behavior as well as um biology and medicine. And so it was really hard to say. And as a child, I didn't even realize that you could work in a research setting before I went to undergraduate. Um, I started my undergraduate. And so I learned that. And I have younger siblings who worked in labs earlier than I did, because I didn't even know this was uh, thing really, but I was going to soccer practice and diving lessons and marching band and doing all of these other extracurricular activities, which I think prepare you in a indirect but helpful way for these kind of career related um, tasks that you end up doing. But yeah, I I wish I could just put my finger on it and say I was like this, but the truth was I was sampling and enjoying a lot of things which is great i think it's it's you know it's it's a good thing because again thank you for for sharing that because people have to and i i I think about myself it's just yeah let's spin it around i didn't know what i wanted to be and even i loved even my phd and my first postdoc i knew that i loved what i working in the lab but it took me a long time to find out that actually I'm not going to be a PI because it's not something that I'd like to pursue. I yes. don't like to write. Yes. That's like pulling teeth. I think I'd rather go to the dentist than write. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's not so far from, yeah. from the truth. And I got to starting this podcast. And with this podcast, I feel like I'm home. Yeah. You know, I'm contributing to the field that, that I love. And at the same time, I feel like it's effortless because I love to do what we're doing right now. No, I think that's wonderful. And I was thinking because we had talked before you had mentioned, like, how do you contribute or how can um, more junior people who want to make a contribution to this field, what can they be doing? And I think that what you just said is so important because contributions don't always come in the forms of posters and papers and patents and IND applications. Sometimes they are mentoring opportunities and education and outreach. And just it's nice that we're in a field that has so many avenues where you can find something that really speaks to what you enjoy rather than what you feel like needs to be done on a day-to-day basis. Exactly, exactly. But but it's a, it's also something very difficult when you think about because as a junior scientist, you know, you're a master's student or a PhD student and you look up to, to your PI, you look up to, you go to conferences and you see all these PIs and from the outside, and this is my own personal experience, you know, you look at all of these experienced people and you're like, okay, they have their things together. And, you know, they do this and they're good and everything they do is perfect. But no, they're human too. They're human too. I think that's really important to recognize and that they have the same, you know, flaws or they have their own flaws. And also, I mean, thinking about people coming up and something I try and remind myself is that 
you don't have to make you don't have to have made it to some arbitrary level to deserve to have a hobby or a family or a life outside like you are deserving of a full life at every level yeah yeah and i think having spoken to so today um i think we're recording episode 82 of the podcast oh. Congratulations. So this, That's a you. lot of episodes. Yes, this is 82. And I, I look, I'm trying to look back at all the people I spoke to and all the guests and what the most successful scientists in our field are the people who, just like yourself, didn't exactly know what they wanted to do. They knew they liked one thing, but they were not sure. And uh, those people are the other, the other characteristic of these successful people is the fact that they love what they do, mm-hmm. but that doesn't define who they are. Yeah. It's just one part of their lives. They've had families, they have, they have hobbies, they like to do other things. And it's hard to see that from the outside. Again, going back to my experience, yes. going to conferences, you know, the, the big names, which I'm not, not going to say who they are because everybody <laughs> knows who I'm thinking about. It's like, this is all they do. Yeah. It's not true. No. No, I think that's really important. And I'm glad that you're bringing attention to that because, yeah, I think it's important. It is important. So um, let me ask you this. You mentioned in the beginning that, you know, you, your lab is eight months old and <laughs> you kind of had to go through this whole experience of transitioning from a postdoc to a PI during the pandemic. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about it. I know that before we hit record, just to put it out there, we were we're already planning a next and next episode about other topics without really spoiling those topics. I'm really interested in, in hearing more about your experience starting your lab during COVID. Yes. So I can say because I started, this was November of 2021, that I feel lucky compared to those who were in this position of transitioning in the fall or even the spring of 2020. So I was able to learn from a lot of the experiences of individuals who went through that process. And so I went in knowing that there were going to be long lead times on equipment deliveries, that it was going to be difficult to recruit, that it could be a challenge to do trainings depending on what kind of the um, masking and physical distancing requirements were. And so I went in with this knowledge, but knowing it and then feeling okay about it are two such different things. Um, It's been incredibly exciting and incredibly exhausting (laughs) trying to figure out how to balance all of these new tasks. And so it's hard for me to discriminate like is this hard because this is just a hard thing to do? Or is this hard because there's this added component of, you know, living in this ongoing pandemic? Um, So it's hard for me to tease out, like, what are the different contributions there? But overall, it's still been fun, which is nice. Because like you said, this wasn't something that I have really intentionally pursued from a very young age. And I really wanted to think that it was going to be as rewarding and like um, satisfying as some of the other um, PIs I've worked for um, have made it out to be. And even eight months in, 
it, it feels that way. Like I really enjoy working with our students. It's very fun to be thinking of projects and grant applications with new colleagues. It's been some growing pains where I realized the kind of blind spots that I had as a postdoc and especially as a postdoc in a very well-resourced lab that had a lot of support in terms of financial resources and equipment and also trained and just really exceptional technical support. So for example, I'm like wondering, you know, what is it? What was that antibiotic that went in the water bath? And what company were we using to source this media from? And, you know, exactly how was this working? Just all of the sudden, it feels like there are all of these new problems that I wasn't even aware of, which is (laughs) kind of realizing in hindsight how lucky you were. I think even, you know, even leaving from lab to lab, you're used to some of your, you know, go-to media or yes. antibiotics. So, and I remember switching labs and being, emailing people back and like, can you take a picture of this for me, please? Yes. What's yes. the catalog number or what's, what's the supplier's name and, and all of these little things. And I remember one, one thing that I had to repeat, and, but towards the third lab I was in, I actually had the catalog number written down. And I now remember, um, you know, I ran a lot of Brett assays. And when I first started, um, when I learned Brett, it was with a, with a postdoc in Michel Bouvier's lab, Yann Percherancier. And he kind of, the first day he gave me all the little tools. He said, you yes. do not lose this <laughs> because this is super cool. And actually it was this eight port manifold. It's like this plastic contraption. Yeah. And on one end you can plug in the suction and on the other end you can add tips so that yes. you can aspirate the media. Yes. And uh, it took me after two lab changes, I actually took one or two pieces with me from lab to lab so that I don't have to think about it. But these are like the little details that you, you don't realize that it's so important to know about until you actually need those. Definitely. And I feel incredibly lucky. I think just for the support. So for the support from the Corona group that I left who continue to answer questions about product numbers and, you know, exactly how long was this incubation. And then also from my new colleagues and just others in the field who have sent me their equipment lists and what they had purchased initially. So mm-hmm. I definitely don't feel like I'm doing this alone, but it's funny because I'm thinking about this. I think I might watch too much TV, but I feel like... <laughs> It's like being taught how to survive, like being taught a set of survival skills during your um, graduate work and your postdoc. But I didn't realize that I was being taught to survive in the environment of like a five-star hotel. And then I've just been, you know, arrived at Minnesota and it feels like I'm now on the show Naked and Afraid, where I really (laughs) knew how to survive in that luxury environment. And now it's just me. And all of a sudden, it's a whole new set of skills. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, you know, I think the most kind of frustrating and interesting part of it is that you do have the funding to get what you need, but you're missing key pieces of information and also the lead time and all of these things that you're like, no, I'm here. I just... (laughs) I know what I want. It's in my head. I just don't know how to say it. <laughs> yes. It's like, I just, I wish everything was going a little bit faster, but yeah. I'm trying to give myself some grace and realize that we are getting there. It's just yeah. not as quickly as 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, being in an established lab, like the Quran lab, I think, you know, they went through that the lab had gone through that in the beginning, but once, once you have the baseline of equipment, the baseline of protocols, you just add, you know, you just, you have the apartment, it's all furnished and you yes. may be adding a, a spoon or a fork here and there or a new plate, but that's about it. Yes. No, exactly. Exactly. That's so interesting. So how, how big is your group right now? So we are lean and mean, which I say instead of small. Um, I think there are four of us. So there are two undergraduate students and a technician. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in the process of recruiting another technician. And our goal is to really be primed and ready to go for the graduate students who are starting in the mm-hmm. fall. Um, They start with rotations and we recruit out of this molecular pharmacology and therapeutics program, as well as the graduate program in neuroscience. And so, yes, the goal is to have a critical mass of people. So we have some work up and going for rotating graduate students to see in the fall. I love I love the strategy of having technicians, you know, start and then build out the the basics because. And, you know, sometimes you think about a technician, you're like, oh, they're just a technician, but no, they're the best thing that can happen to you. They are the so good. best thing. I completely agree. I feel really lucky to have worked with some very talented people and just realizing um, like what someone can do if they have 40 hours a week to work on the project yes. that you need worked on and don't have these other obligations. And I also feel like and I'm trying to get over this, but it's a little bit of a disservice for students to come in and be like, you know, the expectations for you are going to be the same as your peers, but also there's going to be this added need to set up this assay before you run this experiment. So my goal is to really have things set up so that Mm -hmm. my future students enter at the same level as they would in a more established group. Which I think, I I think it's a, it's, it's a nice way to think about it. And it it can be rewarding as well, because so I, I, you know, for training purposes, you have to I was mentioning this yesterday. You have to make your agarose gel with water at least once. Right. <laughs> you know, start your yes. gel and realize that the stuff is diffusing and you're like, oh, I have to start my PCR all over again. Yes. Because, but at the same time, you can learn from running an established assay where you have a protocol because it gives you a different type of experience. And what I mean by that is that you have to learn how to pipette, mm-hmm. but you also have to learn how to think critically and strategically about a scientific question. Absolutely. And those are two different skills and depend and you can't learn both at the same time. And in the long run, the one that serves you more is the strategic and scientific thinking at a higher level, not how to pipette. No, and it is interesting because these are two what feel like pretty distinct skill sets. And Yes. So we had a long time to read articles and write protocols with the students I was working with last spring as we were still getting equipment in and deciding what to do. And I felt like we got to a really good place where we knew what was going on. We knew what we were going to do as soon as we were out the gate. And then all of a sudden things are here and we're ready to go. But seeing written in a protocol, you know, 
um, wash and then add 10 microliters is difficult to interpret with your hands if that's not something you've ever done before. And so it's been a learning curve to recognize that, yeah, it takes time to realize how you reconcile these like bigger scientific concepts with what you're actually going to do tomorrow. Exactly. And and these are difficult things. And when I'm thinking back about, you know, my master's and my PhD, and I was focused, maybe because the lab was brand new. So I joined a lab where there were just fills all around uh, for the summer. So when I first met my PI, there was nothing. There was, I think he had a phone and a laptop, and that's about it. Um, so we spent a lot of time well, I spent a lot of time building out the assays and, yes. you know, taking the assays from, from the Bouvier lab and transferring them to our lab. And we got the equipment and I went through all of that, which was a great experience. But to yes. me, it felt like scientifically thinking of questions that I would like to pursue came towards the end of my PhD. Yes. Because I was so focused on the basics. Yes. Which can be positive. It is. Yes. But in the long run, if you're, you know, I think it's a hard, for me, it would have been maybe a better experience. I, I don't, I don't, I would not change anything, but what I'm trying to say is that learning how to think about scientific questions is as important as learning how to pipette and having had that balance sooner, maybe I would have developed faster. I absolutely see what you're saying. And so this is what I'm balancing with bringing trainees in is how do you make sure that they get both, that they have the protected time to think about the big questions, but they also have the experience of knowing how to set up the assay and how the equipment is working and that kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, that's really awesome. And I am I think it's a nice way to think about it and thinking really strategically and thinking ahead. Yes. As to how do you envision your lab in the next five years? Yes. And so I feel like what I've come to realize talking about, you know, growing up and thinking about career paths is like really what has motivated me, motivated me to progress down this academic science route maybe is a little bit different than what motivates other people. Like I really, I love the science. I like the question. I get kept up at night thinking about, you know, what is next? Like, what are we going to do next? But what's even bigger than that is the desire that I have to like mentor the next generation of scientists and really valuing the relationships that come out of mentoring and really wanting to see a scientific workforce five and 10 and 15 years from now that looks different, that looks more diverse, that has more compassion than what it is that we're working with now. And so one of my goals is to, yeah, find trainees and show them that there is a way to, I mean, what I've seen other people model is be a full and complete happy person as well as be a successful scientist. I love that. I love that. And I think that's very important as well. And I think you made a great point around, you know, the mentorship and being very, you know, strategic and, you know, you go into it with open eyes. You love the science, but it's a communication method. Yes. And it's interesting now that you mentioned that I'm hearing what you, what your answers were in the beginning as to, you know, what kind of activities were you doing as a child or as a teenager and how you got to this, but 
what the the common thread is really human behavior yes and interaction yes together and you know being in the moment and experiencing different things and i think based on what i'm hearing towards the end you want to understand you know the larger phenomena but at a molecular level exactly and i think I'm like compelled to stay at that level because I think this is where we're going to be able to intervene. So I am not as pessimistic as maybe I will be in a few years to think <laughs> that we can't come up with new pharmacotherapies in areas where we have this desperate need like substance use disorders and mood yeah. disorders and even chronic pain. And so there's still a part of me that thinks that, you know, we can be successful in this effort, not only to understand the mechanistic bases of these diseases, but also to use that mechanistic information to develop new therapies. Yeah. I think it's still a, a no matter what the outcome will be, I think it's going to be a still a win-win Yeah, because you will learn about the mechanisms yes. that control, you know, the function of the GPCRs that control behavior and addiction and pain, but it's, Having those small, I think of it as this huge Lego thing that we're building. We don't know what's the end of it, <laughs> but we all contribute with our little pieces of Lego in there. And at some point, you know, some shapes are going to take form and we can yes. distinguish those. But I think that's, that's the, that's the way I see it. Like how, so I like to, I'm, I'm not an artist at, at a heart. I cannot draw, but I like to paint by numbers. And uh, I never focus on the big picture. I always focus on that little square, little shape that I'm doing. And towards the, at, at the end, I'm like, oh, it's actually quite nice. And that's how I see our field as well. We're all in little our little spaces and putting that together is what's going to advance the field to find new therapeutic agents. I love that vision, the vision of looking small and then taking that perspective to look back and realizing what part you're playing in this greater whole. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So let's, let's talk more about receptors. And I asked this from everyone and I'm interested to hearing what you, your thoughts are is what is your favorite GPCR? Ooh. So, okay. Just to come clean, because I didn't start my training as a GPCR biologist, I think my experience with G-protein coupled receptors is less extensive than others. So I have a favorite that is mostly a favorite due to familiarity. So yep. I am hugely interested in neuropeptide receptors, but most specifically in the neurotensin system and the neurotensin receptor one, which... I just think it's so cool. You get many different physiological responses. You get different behavioral responses. We just are having this explosion of structural information about this receptor, which I think is going to be very exciting for future um, like in silico modeling. Yeah. And this is really where I ended my postdoc and where my group is starting is trying to understand this receptor more and specifically how we can target it using allosteric and functionally selective ligands to drive very specific receptor effector coupling. If I were someone who knows GPCRs, doesn't know anything about the neurotensin receptor, what would be like the three key things that you want, you'd want to share with me about the neurotensin receptor? Something mm -hmm. I can go and say, well, this is such a cool receptor because reason one, two, three, four, five. Okay. 
Well, let me start because I think it was helpful for me to understand where it came from. It was isolated from the bovine hypothalamus. This was in 73 and it's named for its ability to reduce blood pressure. So neurotensin originally named for this physiological effect. Um, But what I find most interesting about it is that it modulates brain dopamine. So it lowers blood pressure, it modulates brain dopamine. And what's unique about this is it's located on multiple cell types in this mesolimbic circuit. So you have this unique ability to bidirectionally modulate how these dopamine neurons are signaling. And so you can imagine in disease states where the goal is restoring some kind of homeostatic balance, it can really be an important tool for achieving this balance if you know how to target it in the appropriate way. And so I think it's blood pressure effects, it's brain dopamine modulation. And the other thing that is really fascinating on its own and also a tool is it's involved in body temperature regulation. And actually, yeah, if you um, give the peptides or balanced agonists to animals, they get very cold, like very cold. Like they lose more than 10 degrees of body temperature and this persists for long periods of time. And so it's interesting because we have this very in-your-face physiological responses that we can measure. And then we have these more subtle changes in behavior driven by centrally mediated dopamine. Um, So I think those are the main things. So we have these Mm -hmm. changes in body temperature and blood pressure, but also in the initiation of motivated behavior. That's so, so interesting. You know, as you were, you're talking the, the image that popped into my head is like this, the neurotensin receptor is like this orchestra conductor and actually it's modulating, like, like it's, it's playing like three, it's conducting three different orchestras, but they're all in the same under his, uh, under its control. Um, Yes. And I didn't even talk, it doesn't raise to my top three, but I think other people would tell you about its regulation of feeding behaviors because of its actions in other brain regions. And it's also one of these brain gut hormones. So it has peripheral roles in regulating um, nutrients and appetite and these kinds of things as well. So, wow. I know. I think it's, it's fascinating. It is fascinating. And so I think it's a really ripe system for trying to link distinct signaling pathways with different biology, because we know that there are many different cell types expressing it, that most likely the effector expression levels are different in these cell types. And so it's just a really nice system to try and understand how signaling leads to changes in physiology. I think you raised a very interesting point as to, you know, having a model receptor that does all of these things, but from a, from a research program perspective, it allows you to use multiple tools. You can think about the basic signaling assay. You can think about animal models and behavior and capturing this, this entire realm in which this receptor is, is acting and you can capture this information from these different sources and try to, you know, solve your own little puzzle when you think about it. Exactly. Like it's a little bit, 
it's a fast moving area because many people have an interest in this receptor. Mm -hmm. I mean, for good reason, we've talked about it does many different things, but my interest stems from this ongoing project that started actually in 2015 at the start of my postdoc with Mark Carone and Larry Barrick looking for the effects of receptor beta arrestin recruitment and looking for beta arrestin selective agonists, mm-hmm. which we now think that we have found a family of compounds that gives us this very selective beta arrestin pathway activation in the absence of canonical G-protein signaling. And so this interest in the receptor driven both by its interesting, um, you know, biological effects, but also because we have this rapidly expanding pharmacological toolkit for probing it and trying to understand how its actions affect these processes. And and having, you know, the the flexibility to look at the receptor function and, and how it affects behavior and having the toolbox, I think it's all of these components that allow you to really move your projects and, and the, the better understanding of the biology of the receptor forward. And these are like the, the little pieces that become very important in order to potentially target this receptor. Absolutely. And thinking about it from a behavior standpoint, I mean, this is one of a number of different neuropeptide receptors, G-protein coupled receptors, we could be thinking to target. It's a little bit unique in its ability to regulate the system bidirectionally, um, but also hoping that what we learn from the system will be able to apply to others. So thinking about like ghrelin and narokinin and um, others of these, and even some of the opioid receptors, I feel like we can learn from our experience with in a, in a pathophysiological setting, um, what would you, what does neurotensin do and how would you want to modulate it? You mentioned, you know, having these tool compounds that selectively activate beta restin and don't touch uh, the G protein signaling, but can you give us an example as to why should we care about neurotensin in a pathophysiological setting and how can we modulate that? Yeah. Okay. Well, I can let you know, because this is kind of an ongoing area of investigation for us, is I am interested in drug discovery for substance use disorders. And a problem in substance use disorders is this dysregulation of brain dopamine, and specifically dysregulation through the dopamine's receptor D2. And what's very interesting about the neurotensin receptor one is it's expressed in dopamine-rich brain regions, and it's been cited to co-localize with the dopamine receptor D2. There are, let's say, different fractions, like some will argue that this is a physical receptor-receptor um, interaction. We're actually having these heterodimers. Others think that this is more of a functional interaction. We want to remain agnostic as to that point, but what is clear is that you have this antagonistic relationship between the neurotensin receptor 1 and the dopamine receptor D2. And because a shared feature of misused drugs is their ability to elevate dopamine levels, specifically in the ventral striatum, the ability to turn down the brain's response to that aberrant and in some cases excessive dopamine could be really therapeutically useful. So you can administer peptide, neurotensin receptor 1 agonists, and get reductions in all of these cocaine, methamphetamine, um, um, and amphetamine as well, associated behaviors. 
But the problem is what we talked about before is you give those and you get these reductions in the behavior you're trying to get rid of, but you also have changes in blood pressure and body temperature. And so it was recognized very early on, like in the early 80s, that this was a good system for modulating the brain's response to dopamine. But there wasn't a path forward for clinical development because of the side effects. And one of the really interesting discoveries that we made as part of Mark and Larry's group was that when we get very um, specific neurotensin receptor 1 beta arrestin recruitment, we seem to retain some of these positive effects on dopamine regulation and motivated behavior, but we lose other activities like the ability of that receptor ligand pair to change blood pressure and body temperature. So we're calling this class of modulators, thinking of them as beta arrestin biased allosteric modulators or BAMs, trying to make BAMs happen. (laughs) (laughs) I was was waiting for that because I remember seeing you, seeing your talk at the retreat and I thought it was such a, you know, cool and catchy way of thinking about it. I feel like it is. And so, I mean, we struggled for a long time to figure out what was happening with these compounds because in some ways they look like positive allosteric modulators. We get increases in the endogenous ligands affinity for the receptor, increases in the apparent number of binding sites for the endogenous ligand. But on the other hand, they look like negative allosteric modulators because we get antagonism very selectively of G-protein coupling driven by orthosteric agonism. And so trying to reconcile these simultaneous PAM and NAM activities is how we reconcile this with this biased allosteric modulator idea. And it, 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 it was BAM. <laughs> I mean, and then it was BAM. <laughs> so I think that's really what we're thinking about here is, I mean, a way to probe this idea that really G-protein signaling and arrestin can confer distinct physiological effects. And um, one of the most exciting ways that we've seen that in our animal models is looking at these changes in body temperature. I I noted that these beta arrestin biased allosteric modulators don't cause hypothermia the same way balanced agonists do. But these biased allosteric modulators bias the signaling of the endogenous ligand so that in their presence, you aren't getting receptor GQ signaling. And in vivo, you can actually antagonize the effects of that GQ signaling in terms of changes in body temperature, which was just such a cool demonstration in vivo of changing receptor signaling and then changing the product of that signaling at an organismal level. I think it's, um, you know, I, you were talking, I, I was seeing those response curves oh, flying yeah. in and out and, 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 you know, it, I, I always find it fascinating to think about, you know, the effect of a drug on the system where you're looking at a dose response and then that dose response actually has physiological effects. Yes. So like, wow. How cool is this? Yes. Yes. Which is, uh, which is really awesome. Um, the other, so um, let's take a step back and go go higher higher level and think about GPCRs. And I think the answer to this question is yes. But I'll ask it, and, and I want to ask you a little bit about your your perspective on this. Uh, do you think GPCRs are still good drug targets? So 
Yes. My answer is yes. But I think what's exciting is that we're now going to be able to target them in new and more selective ways. So I think, yes, they are good drug targets. I also think the more we learn about how they're signaling, the better we're going to be able to capitalize capitalize on that in order to control that signaling for therapeutic benefit. I think the idea of functional and ligand-directed signaling, and this idea that you can direct signaling down specific signaling pathways, really opened up the, I don't know, an opportunity to retarget a lot of these G-protein-coupled receptors for which development was precluded by their on-target side effects. And also this idea that you can get allosteric modulators that produce not just quantitative, but qualitative changes in how these receptors are acting is also hugely exciting. And so I do see, or I hope that we're going to have a renaissance in GPCR drug discovery that moves beyond looking at binding assays for orthosteric agonists. And we're using functional screening in very discrete cell populations to look for specific signaling activation um, in settings that more mimic the effector compilation and tissue type that we hope to augment therapeutically. I think that's, that's a challenge. And I think the field is going towards that. And, you know, biotech and pharma are already and have been already for a while looking at functional screening instead of just quote unquote binding. But I think the difficulty lies into the second half of your answer is really looking in cells or in, or systems that are, pathophysiologically relevant. Yes. That's the difficulty there. But still, I think with all the tools that have been, you know, made available and all of these things that are now available, I mean, 15 years ago, we didn't have enough structures. Now it's just, you know, at some point you lose count, you have to go on GPCRDB (laughs) to figure out how many structures and what's the link and what's the PDB, uh, you know, accession number and things like that. Um, we do have a lot of tools. I think the field is conscious of towards, you know, putting behind a little bit the binding aspect, but more the functional consequence of that binding and measuring that to screen for compounds and molecules. But what other tools do you think we need in order to get to the point where we can use the relevant cell line or the relevant organism to very quickly, you know, skip skip the the binding part of things and like speed up drug discovery i think it's a tough one i know so much more information i know it is a tough one i feel like we really are at a point where we don't have the information we need to be able to rationally design the screens that would need to be done so we need to understand how does pathophysiology change what's happening at the cellular level and how can we take that information into in vitro cell systems. And I think that will come with more mechanistic work trying to see what the, I mean, not just like the mRNA, but at the protein level and at the subcellular localization level, how does the disease change what's happening? Because I think that's information that we don't even necessarily know for healthy tissue, let alone in these disease conditions. 
Yeah, I think, and I think that the, in the context of, of the neurotensin receptor, you're kind of lucky having all these systems. Yeah kind of worked out because you can measure the consequences in an animal model as much as in the cell line. But for a lot of other GPCRs and, you know, let's not talk about, um, you know, olfactory GPCRs or orphan GPCRs or all of these systems where it's hard. We don't even know the biology well enough at an organism level to be able to ask these questions. So we're kind of working in the dark a little bit. Absolutely. And I feel lucky to be working in an area, especially where people have been so generous with their tools. So a lot of what we've been able to work out um, is coming from the use of cell type specific beta arrestin 2 knockout mice that were made by Nikhil Urs mm-hmm. um, and also neurotensin receptor 1 flocks to knock in cream mice that were made by Gina Lininger at Michigan State. And the idea of working in this atmosphere where people are more interested in advancing the science than hoarding what they've developed is so wonderful because it allows us to go further faster. Yes. Yes. Which takes me to my next next question. And we talked a little bit about it and I'm glad that you mentioned, you know, the importance of collaborating and the importance of sharing tools in order to answer high level scientific questions. Um, Any advice for junior scientists who want to contribute to the field or want to, in general, make an impact on science? Ooh, such a good question. I, so a couple of things come to mind. I think the first thing just goes back to something we were talking about earlier is to make sure you're recognizing all the ways you already are contributing to science, keeping in mind that these contributions aren't always high impact papers, that they can be mentoring, they can be outreach, they can be education. And so thank you for everything you're already doing. And I hope you're giving yourself that same acknowledgement. Um, I also think just making sure that you have the time and the space to think creatively. I think there's a lot we still need to understand and to make sure that um, it's not just we have our heads down on the bench and we're pipetting and we're really thinking about what conceptually is possible. So not to box our thinking in um, based on the diagrams that we see in textbooks. Yeah, and I think you make a great point, and um, and I always found that very difficult because I guess the culture in science, where if you're not at the bench pipetting, it means that you're not working, which is not true. Which is not true. Um, you know, you you need, to, and you don't need to be reading a paper. You just need to have conversations with with your colleagues. Sitting outside in the sun for fifteen minutes during the summertime is also, I think has a lot of benefits mentally because it gives you the space to think about these things. I feel like that too. And like, so two other things come to mind. The first is to work to find mentors who will champion you and champion your work. I feel like this system that we're in, in science and more specifically, because this is what I know, academic science, it isn't intuitive and there isn't a roadmap. And it really has helped me to find mentors who know what I'm supposed to be doing next, who know you need to write a fellowship application. You should be applying to these schools. You should think about giving a talk at this meeting to open those doors that you may not even know exist. 
Exactly. Exactly. Then that, that leads me to a question. Um, how do you find a mentor? Because it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a tricky one. And the reason I'm saying this is because as, as a trainee, you know, when, when somebody told me you need a mentor and like, how do you go about it? You, how, yeah. Yes. Stop here. Um, so I would be interested in what your view of this is. Um, I think the best thing to do is to ask to be really transparent about what it is that you're hoping to get. Not necessarily, will you be my mentor, but could you read this abstract or could you listen to my 20 minute talk and tell me what you think? Or could you tell me if you think this is a good opportunity or worthwhile? Um, Because I think if someone approaches you and asks like, can you show me, you know, how to live this life? That's a big responsibility, but piecing together over time, like, could you help me figure out what I should do in response to this email or what reagent should I be using? And just building over time, um, these relationships by being okay for asking for help and to ask for help from the most relevant person, not necessarily just your own immediate supervisor. I love that. I love that. And I totally agree with you. And I think going at it and saying, would you be my mentor is definitely not the right way to go about it because, so there's two components to this. One, um, I think asking for help is a difficult thing to do. Yes. Uh, so first you have to realize that it's okay to ask for help. Yes. Two, uh, finding a mentor is a long-term goal and it's not, one day you, that doesn't happen one day to another. So I think one nice way to find a mentor in a more organic fashion is to be open and talk to people. Yes. And ask questions. You know, you go to a talk, you like the speaker's talk, send them an email and say, Hey, I listened to your talk and it was great. And this is the part that I liked the most. Yes. And you know, you've created that interaction already. You've said something nice hopefully genuine. <laughs> and, and then over time you can go back and say, well, you know, um, I reached out to you. I really loved your talk last time. I was hoping, you know, I have a quick question. Would you mind helping me with this? And, you know, still be respectful. And if you don't get an answer, it's okay because people are busy. I sometimes yes. don't get to answer emails right away. And sometimes it happens within seconds because I see it, I answer and I'm done. Yes. But it's a long-term thing and full disclosure, I was always having a difficult time, like, you know, finding a mentor as a trainee, even as a postdoc. And now I can tell after 82 episodes of (laughs) of recording the podcast and two and a half years within doing Dr. GPC, I've met such wonderful people. And some of these have become my mentors. Some of these have become my go-to people. You know, I'm having this difficulty do you have 30 minutes? Yes. And the answer is 99.999% of, of the time. Yes. yes. Do you have time now? And then, or the phone rings and they're like, yeah, sure. What's up? And it, but it goes both ways. So I, yes. I give back as well. No, I think that's wonderful. And I also feel like I want to give back because I recognize the time that's been invested in me from people who were very short on time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And one other in- interesting thing is that, you know, um, and this is mainly to the audience listening to this podcast episode, you're not alone. No. Um, every time you have a question, you just go on Google, you start typing it and Google finishes your sentence 
And it's the same thing in the, in the scientific world, in the GPCR field. We've all went through more or less the same larger questions, the same larger difficulties. So wherever you turn in the field, there's someone who's had that issue before. And, you know, even though they cannot tell you what to do, and I agree with you, Lauren, when you mentioned that it's a huge responsibility to tell someone this is what you should do. But one thing that you can think about is asking that question about the, that person about their experience going through something similar. Mm-hmm. Because talking to five different people who had the same problem or something similar to what you're going through and learning about their approach will do two things. One, everybody likes to talk about themselves. So you're going to forge that relationship with that person. Two, you're going to learn from their experience and hopefully it's going to make you think about what feels right to you. Yeah. So I think it's, uh, and I, I don't know about you, but I think you'll agree with me is that the field, people in our field are typically very nice yes. and giving. And uh, sometimes you might, you know, email someone, you don't get a response. It's okay. It's never personal. We all have our, our issues, our problems, our lives. We're all human. But um, in general, I think our field is just such a wonderful place to be in. It definitely is. I feel like people have been and are so generous with their time. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was just thinking is not to discount the value of peer mentorship relationships and just yes. peer relationships while you're in your lab group. One yes. of the things I didn't really think about as I was going through graduate school is just the people who are in your program, like they're your future colleagues and they will have information and resources that if you don't need right now, you could need in the future. And so to make sure you're learning from their experiences and, you know, I think you can kind of develop your own community of both like emotional support, but also scientific support. Yeah. Yeah. But I, and I also feel like, and it's an important point that you, that you raise in, but I also feel like, you know, that's the first level of mentorship that you get access to and people tend to feel more comfortable with their peers uh, than talking to PIs. Like yeah. think about the GBC retreat. Um, if you looked at who was sitting with who at the tables in the room, you could tell that we we all have this tendency of sitting with each other because we know each other. And students were typically in the back together, in the same lab, same group, or you know, neighboring groups, which is fine. But I think we forget to think about the fact that that's mentorship and that's support as well. Definitely. Yes. So um, I think that that's also important to recognize yeah. in that regard. All right. Two last questions. Uh, top three aha moments that changed or shaped your trajectory as a scientist. Ooh, okay. Um, I think, so my first one came in graduate school. I wish it had come earlier, but it actually came towards the end when I was finishing and this wasn't a G-protein coupled receptor related project. We were still in the transporter world. And I was studying this glutamate transporter that was regulated by oxidative stress. And I had seen through a number of years that we could use like specifically peroxynitrite decomposition catalyst to change the expression level of this transporter and also the amount of glutamate that it was spitting out. This was in the context of a model of 
cancer-induced bone pain. And so we would put these cells into um, the bones of mice to model a metastatic tumor. And then we would monitor their pain and look for agents that could reduce these pain-associated behaviors. And I had done a lot of work with this model. I had done a lot of cell culture work, and I could see that we could reduce the expression of this glutamate transporter on tumor cells. We could reduce the glutamate that they were spitting out. And as a function of that, we could reduce the excitability of these primary afferent nociceptors that had these glutamate receptors and were getting excited and producing pain for the mice or these nociceptive responses. And it was so you know, interesting. But the last piece was to actually measure glutamate levels in vivo, give this decomposition catalyst and see if what we were seeing in the cells happened in this model. And I was hugely excited. I was getting ready to graduate. And it just seemed like the final piece of the puzzle was making sure that our model was showing the same thing as our cell system. (laughs) And I had gone through the process of monitoring these pain-associated behaviors, and I could see that over the course, this was like a two-week model, we got reductions in pain behaviors after we gave this decomposition catalyst. And this was huge. I was so excited. I was so excited. But then I got to the process of measuring glutamate levels And I collected tissue after treatment and with the Compton catalyst and then with vehicle treated mice, and there was no difference. And so we're seeing this reduction in pain behaviors, but the glutamate levels between treated and untreated or vehicle treated were exactly the same. And I was devastated. And one, because it meant that our hypothesis was wrong, but two, because on a more fundamental level, it just meant that we really didn't understand what was happening here. And so it was very frustrating. And this was like a period of months. And at some point I was doing my due diligence and going back and looking at data that we had collected from before treatment on that final day. So we had looked at behavior and we had collected samples from mice that had not gotten that final treatment, but had chronically been dosed with this agent. And what I saw was actually that they were exhibiting more pain behaviors before treatment than vehicle animals. They actually looked worse. And then when I looked at glutamate levels in those mice before treatment, they had a lot more glutamate. So we were getting reductions with our treatment, but it was from this hugely elevated level. And so it was fascinating because it was a reminder that these model systems are dynamic and they don't just stay the same when we try these interventions and we could be having unintended consequences, including over this chronic administration, actually making the mice more uncomfortable than they had been without treatment. Wow. Such a, such an interesting phenomenon. And I, to be honest, I don't think about how dynamic the system these systems are until you just mentioned that you make a great point. Like these systems are dynamic. Yeah. So we were having this compensatory upregulation that had never entered my mind, but (laughs) wow. Now I, now, now, you know, 
now I think about that a lot. It's like over time, what are we doing? And is this the same system that we were treating on day one? Um, yeah. Wow. It's so interesting to think about. Yeah. It's, it's something that I don't think a lot of people think about, but you have to experience it to keep it in mind all the time. That even if, even in cells, things change on a daily basis. You're not working with the same cell. It may come from the same vial, but you know, after 10 passages, you've changed the whole population there. Exactly. It's both terrifying and exciting because this is the reality that we have to work within. Exactly. Exactly. But all right. Last but not least a question. Um, you mentioned, you know, hiring and thinking about building out your team. Where can people find you when you have job openings? Oh, wonderful. Um, so a couple of places. First of all, I have open positions on the University of Minnesota HR site. Mm-hmm. I'm actively looking for a postdoc. Mm-hmm. I also am very interested in graduate student recruitment. And we recruit through both this molecular pharmacology and therapeutics program, as well as the graduate program in neuroscience. So in we have this website that's under development, but in the meantime, open positions are on the University of Minnesota page. And mm-hmm. I would also say to anyone who may be interested to please send me an email because I think we're always looking to grow and find people who have similar interests that may be able to learn something and also teach us something on part of this journey. So fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'll have, I'll have people, uh, you know, reach out. And I think one other way, um, I know you're on Twitter, uh, yeah. our GBCR community is really active on Twitter. So I think yeah. posting it, um, I'll be happy to, to retweet and yes. um, we, with the new ecosystem, we're going to have a job board as well, which I think is going to be really awesome to have people for people to be able not only to see the available positions in the field, but potentially contact you, for example, directly yeah. from the ecosystem and, you know, have a quick chat um, in our new, uh, new ecosystem. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. All right. Thank you, Lauren. It was really awesome talking to you. I cannot wait for us to, and I'm putting pressure here on you to record our next episodes on different topics. Uh, but I think it's important to have these types of discussions because um, it's important. We don't get, we don't have the forum to do it elsewhere. No, I really, I mean, thank you for having me and also for hosting this podcast because I have loved learning from all of your other guests. Thank you so much, Lauren. All right. Have a nice day. Right. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us and listening in to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. I'd like to thank our team members, Attila Forrest, Ines Pinero, and our newest Dr. GPCR protege, Montserrat Avila-Zozoya. Welcome to the team, Monse. Please subscribe to the Dr. GPCR newsletter, find us on YouTube, and if you like our podcast, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. You can also leave us a testimonial at drgpcr.com slash testimonials. Another great way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. Email us with any questions or suggestions at any time at hello at drgpcr.com. Until next time, stay safe.